Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. A lot of church news to talk about on this episode, including the Pope recently naming Washington Archbishop Wilton Gregory as the first African-American Cardinal of the United States. Then some breaking news, Bishop has received permission from the Vatican to include a new saint on our diocesan liturgical calendar. Find out who we will be celebrating and when. Then Bishop and Kyle wrap up their conversation on the Pope's newest encyclical, which stresses unity and love of neighbor, something that seems especially relevant today. Uh, He uses a phrase that I thought, wow, I've never heard of this, a politics of love. That's like the last thing we think of when we we think of politics today. But he's calling for a better kind of politics that is really at the service of the common good. Then, since November has been designated Black Catholic History Month, Bishop talks about the lives of African Americans who are candidates for canonization, including Venerable Father Augustus Tolton, Servant of God Sister Thea Bowman, and Servant of God Mother Mary Lang. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've got a lot to talk about today. It's kind of action-packed. We'll see if we can fit it all in. You want to go ahead and jump in and get us started with prayer? Sure. I, th- I know we're going to continue talking about the new encyclical of Pope Francis, Fratelli uh-huh. Tutti. And last week, I did the prayer, which is an ecumenical Christian prayer that is at the end of the encyclical. Uh-huh. And I thought today I would pray the other prayer. It's called a prayer to the creator, which even non-Christians can say. Okay. So I'll use that. It's, again, at the very end of the encyclical. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, Father of our human family, you created all human beings equal in dignity. Pour forth into our hearts a fraternal spirit and inspire in us a dream of renewed encounter, dialogue, justice, and peace. Move us to create healthier societies and a more dignified world, a world without hunger, poverty, violence, and war. May our hearts be open to all the peoples and nations of the earth. May we recognize the goodness and beauty that you have sown in each of us and thus forge bonds of unity, common projects, and shared dreams. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Also, we want to thank some people who wanted to sponsor the show in honor of Monsignor Bill Schooler and St. Pius X Parish. So we want to thank them and and maybe remember them today. Wonderful priest of our diocese. Yeah. 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 And beautiful parish as well that they built up there. Yeah. Some beautiful new church. Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to have Monsignor give me a tour and explain some of the symbolism in there. It's, it's amazing, some yeah. of, all the thought that went into it, which yes. I appreciate. You know, Father Dan Scheidt, who used to be an associate, a parochial vicar at St. Pius, he helped with a lot yeah, of that. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, you know, a lot of theology. Right, right. Well, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is some African Americans whose cause for canonization is underway. And it got me wondering, have you ever been part of a cause for canonization? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, a couple of people have been canonized I've met, but I've never been 
part of a cause, no. Okay. I've never, like, given testimony. Okay. Because usually that would happen in their diocese, that the bishop of that diocese would be a part of that process, right? That's right. That's where the process would begin. Sure. All right. Well, another thing we have along those lines with African-Americans who are up for canonization is we have a first African-American cardinal that Pope Francis a couple weeks ago Yes. Yes, the Archbishop of Washington, Cardinal-elect Wilton Gregory. Do you know him very well? I know him, but I wouldn't say very well. I mean, we've had conversations. I mean, I've spoken to him when, when he was Archbishop of Atlanta. That's where he was before he was transferred to to Washington, D.C. Also, earlier on in my, uh, after being ordained uh, bishop back in 2004, he was the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Okay. I guess it's showing some progress, especially when we think of, I guess maybe we'll talk about later today, Father Augustus Tolton and, and some of the hardships that some of our African-American Catholics have gone through to enter the priesthood to begin with, much less become bishop and now cardinal. Right. Well, you know, I'm very happy that we have our first African-American cardinal because, you know, when you think about the history of African-American Catholics and thinking of the, the, the fidelity, the perseverance, how they especially encountered racism and yet persevered in mm-hmm. their Catholic faith, it's been quite a journey, and I, I just think there must be a lot of joy mm-hmm. in the African-American Catholic community that an African-American bishop is now a cardinal of the church. Mm-hmm. Another thing, I, you mentioned that we're going to have a new saint on our liturgical calendar for the diocese. Yes, St. Catherine Casper. I think that's good for the listeners to understand that you know we have a universal liturgical calendar. Mm-hmm. So... When you go to mass, daily masses, sometimes it's a memorial of a saint or a feast of a saint or an optional memorial of a saint or a blessed. But there's also the possibility of a particular diocese, because every diocese has its own liturgical calendar, Mm -hmm. to have a saint or blessed who's not on the universal calendar. Now, there has to be some special connection to the diocese for this to happen. And the bishop can't decide to do that. He has to ask the Vatican for permission. So it's really the Congregation for Divine Worship at the Vatican that has to approve the inclusion of one of these saints and blesseds in a diocesan calendar. So we've had two, and both of them I had petitioned the Vatican for since I've been here Uh to be put on our diocesan calendar, and we got approved. One is St. Theodore Guerin, Mm -hmm. and the other is Blessed Solanus Casey, both very connected to our diocese. I also had asked about two others that I got negative replies to from the Vatican that I couldn't put them on the diocesan calendar. So so when I submitted this request for Mother Catherine Casper, now St. Catherine Casper, I wasn't sure if I was going to get a positive, because I was two for two, uh-huh. two for four, <laughs> right? Um, you know, two yes, two no. Uh-huh. So, so I got the letter. It's in and it's in Latin, uh-huh. and I said, "Wow, great!" So it's going to be her feast is on February first, and it will be an optional memorial in our diocese. 
And what's the connection? Well, you know, Mother Catherine Casper was the foundress of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ, a religious community that has been such an important part of the history of the church in our diocese. Their mother house is in Donaldson. Mm -hmm. And um, when they first came in the 1800s, they began at St. Joseph in Hessen Castle. Of course, they founded St. Joseph Hospital in Fort Wayne and and have served in, in many of our schools and other apostolates through the years. Uh, so I think I had a pretty strong case uh-huh. to include her in our uh, diocesan calendar. So, so on February 1st will be the first time, next year will be the first time we'll be able to, to observe her feast day. All right. Well, good. Thanks for sharing some of her story too and, and look for that February 1st. Want to continue our conversation from last week on the encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Your Italian's getting much better, oh, Kyle. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had some <laughs> spaghetti last night just to get, get in the mood. Well, that's like when I eat Mexican food, it uh-huh. helps with my Spanish. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so I think if I remember, we covered about the first two chapters. Yes, we did. Eight. So I'm not sure what else you want to cover here. There's a lot to talk about in the encyclical. Well, I talked a lot about chapter two because to me, that's the theological heart of the encyclical. Mm-hmm the Pope's reflection on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think I'll just maybe, I won't get into so much depth as I did in the last program, but I think just moving on to chapter three, third chapter is entitled Envisaging and Engendering an Open World. It's about going outside the self in order to find a fuller existence in another the Pope is talking about the importance of, of love, that we need to open ourselves up through love. Again, the whole idea of the encyclical is, is about universal fraternity. And basically, the Holy Father is saying that our spiritual stature is measured by love, that we should always be uh, seeking the good of the other, that this is, you know, very basic Christianity, really, that we should not be selfish, that we should have a spirit of solidarity. And he says that begins in the family, the importance of love within a family. But then he goes on beyond that to, to really the, the human family, that we need to recognize everyone on earth as our brothers and sisters, that everyone has the right to live with dignity. And he said, these rights have no borders. That's Mm -hmm. really strong, that no one should be excluded. And he talks about um, an ethics of international relations, going so far as to say that every country also belongs to foreigners, and that the goods of a territory can't be denied to those who are in need and Mm -hmm. come from another place. Of course, we know he's talking about migrants Mm -hmm. and refugees. But Um, also probably trade and interacting with other countries and and sharing resources. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and he does affirm as the church has always taught, the right to private property. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a natural right. But he puts it in perspective and says it's secondary to another principle. 
the principle called the universal destination of created goods. <laughs> and that's something that's a very important part of the social doctrine of the church. I've spoken about it uh, a number of times, but I don't know that we speak about it enough, that all the goods of the earth are meant for everyone. So private property is subordinate to the universal destination of the world's goods. You know, so I think it's an important uh, chapter in the encyclical. It's, you know, again, there's a lot more in it, but, but that gives a general idea. The fourth chapter really has a lot more to say about migration. The fourth chapter is entitled, A Heart Open to the Whole World. So again, we have this idea of how we need to be concerned with everyone on earth. Again, the idea of there's no borders when it comes to human dignity. Mm -hmm. And he talks about all the hardships that migrants face. You know, people who are fleeing from war and violence, perhaps persecution, natural catastrophes, unscrupulous trafficking, mm -hmm. um, human trafficking. And he really is very strong, as he has been throughout his pontificate, on our responsibility to welcome, protect, support, and integrate migrants. Now, he's saying that we should try to avoid unnecessary migration. In other words, there should be, we should help to create opportunities for people to live with dignity in their, in their countries of origin. Right. And that's, you know, I think when I hear that, I always think of Catholic Relief Services because mm -hmm. that's what we're doing through Catholic Relief Services, right. helping people in their own countries so that they can, for, for example, build a livelihood mm -hmm. through farming, clean water, education, all the things that CRS supports. So that's really important. At the same time, though, Pope Francis is saying is that we need to respect the right of people to seek a better life elsewhere because of the extremely difficult or dangerous uh, situation they are in in their home countries. So we need to welcome and assist migrants. Also, you know, have a balance. We protect the citizens who are already here in our country, for example. But we're talking here about a humanitarian crisis. So it's important that we be generous, for example, in granting visas to these people. It's important that people who are, uh, that there be some kind of humanitarian corridors for migrants mm. and that they have basic human rights, that they have a place, a lodging, that they have food, they have security, all those things. So I think really a, this isn't new, what we read in chapter four. But again, when you think of the title, A Heart Open to the Whole World, he's basically saying that, again, we need to have this sense of universal fraternity. And he's very critical of what he calls narrow forms of nationalism, just closing doors or um, – and we shouldn't look at people in other cultures or other nations as enemies. And that kind of flows into the next chapter, which he – it's, it's entitled A Better Kind of Politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds like something we need. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, he uses a phrase 
that I thought, wow, I've never heard of this. A politics of love. That's like the last thing we think of right. when, we, when we think of politics today. But he's calling for a better kind of politics that is really at the service of the common good. And he addresses the whole issue of populism. It's very well nuanced the way he treats the issue of populism. He's really condemning a certain kind of populism, but he's speaking positively in this chapter about the idea of the people. Okay, he says that if we, if we give up on the idea of the people, that we're not going to have good politics. You know, there should be the voice of the people, et cetera. But what he's critical of is when this gets distorted by a narrow populism. And he's talking about how some politicians or government leaders exploit politically a people's culture for the leader's own personal advantage mm. or to continue their own grip on power. So leaders use kind of our manipulating, I guess you would mm -hmm. say. And um, no, he's saying that leaders should really be not self-serving, which would be he'd condemn that kind of populism, that they're just stirring up the people to for their own for their own power. But he's saying no, the proper spirit of a people in order to serve their own I mean to serve the people rather than their own political self interest. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting because Pope Francis had a you know, comes from Argentina where there was a populist uh, background, you know. So he's really, you know, condemning a certain kind of populism that isn't really from the people, but rather is manipulating the people for political ends. So I think that's an interesting chapter of people. Uh, you know, I do recommend that, especially for those who are interested in what the Holy Father has to say about a better politics. Of course, he, he centers a lot on that politics should be centered on human dignity. It shouldn't be centered on the marketplace. He says that can't solve every problem, you know, and of course talks about how we should always be concerned in politics and when, especially when talking about economic issues for the wounded who are on the left on the side of the road. Right. You know, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah, I feel like he also talks about, in, in the parts that I've read at least, the the inequality of the, the powerful and the wealthy versus the poor and the marginalized and how easy it is to, I, I guess, kind of push them farther down by that kind of self-interest and, and taking care of other wealthy and powerful people and neglecting right. those others. Yeah. And he really calls the United Nations to really be working also for the eradication of poverty and uh, that all of us should be involved in, in trying to overcome poverty. Mm -hmm. The sixth chapter is entitled Dialogue and Friendship in Society. Here he gets very much to a frequent theme in his writings and his speeches, the idea of encounter, mm -hmm. the importance of encounter with everyone, including people who are on the peripheries, that we can learn from everyone. No one's useless. No one's expendable. We should have a, a, an attitude of kindness, 
an attitude of friendship, an attitude of, of dialogue, the importance of this, what he calls the art of encounter. So that's a very you know, beautiful chapter. The chapter after that, chapter seven, is entitled Paths of Renewed Encounter, where he underlines the importance of peace building, which he, he even talks about loving an oppressor, but helping them to change, mm-hmm. to you know, forgiveness. Now, he doesn't say that means no punishment for, for those who commit crimes, but we shouldn't have a desire for revenge. We shouldn't be settling conflicts by war because he said war, the risks, or the w- risks outweigh the benefits. And here he said something that is a bit, uh, it's being debated a lot, uh, the idea of a just war. Mm-hmm. Basically, Pope Francis is saying it's very difficult nowadays to speak of the possibility of a just war. So that's something to, I mean, I, I do believe myself that, you know, the principles of just war are still important. But, you know, sometimes just war criteria are used to justify going to war when really they're not fulfilled these principles the the risk is to for example to harm to innocent civilians etc you know it's just too great so really the pope's saying for example that the total elimination of nuclear arms is a moral and humanitarian imperative hmm. and he of course decries the amount of the billions of dollars spent on weapons mm-hmm. that could be used for the elimination of hunger, for right. example. Sure. So because of chemical and biological weapons and nuclear weapons, he really says it really would be difficult to speak of the possibility of a just war. It's in that chapter he also, something else that's been highlighted in the media is what he says about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. His position on the death penalty, it's, it's pretty well known. He says it's inadmissible. Mm-hmm and it should be abolished worldwide. He doesn't call it a, an intrinsic evil, but he says it's inadmissible. Basically, he says not even a murderer loses his personal dignity. Hmm. So he, he connects it with how we need to respect the sacredness of human life, um, and human life shouldn't be sacrificed course he's also talking about the unborn the poor the disabled the elderly he mentions all of this but he really is extremely strong in his condemnation of the death penalty he basically is saying it's it's very cruel and it's it's inadmissible the final chapter chapter eight is entitled religions at the service of fraternity in our world and he really holds up interreligious dialogue as a way to bring friendship, peace, and harmony. Mm-hmm. He said, we can't achieve fraternity, universal fraternity, without openness to God, the father of all. And violence has no basis in religious convictions. Violence is really, would be a deformity of mm-hmm. true religion. Terrorism, for example, 
is really not due to religion, but to erroneous interpretations of religious texts. Mm -hmm. So he's really saying that we should, people of different religions should be on a journey of peace together. Mm -hmm. And there should be a guarantee of religious freedom for all, right. a fundamental right for all believers. It's interesting that a lot of, or a number of times in the encyclical, the Pope quotes the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together that he signed in 2019 in Abu Dhabi, along with the grand imam of Al-Azhar. And he quotes that document a number of times in the encyclical, and he kind of returns to an appeal from that, that document to that dialogue is the way, common cooperation in the name of human fraternity. There needs to be interreligious dialogue and all working together for the cause, causes of peace and justice. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts? I mean, you've, you've been reading it, you said, Kyle, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a slow reader. And <laughs> I also make it a lot of notes and highlights as I go through. And it kind of helps me to, to remember things as I do that. But I, I just think there's I, – I think I'm surprised sometimes at how well he understands things like social media. And, and things. sometimes I feel like – He'd be clueless about my daily life things, but there's so many things that, oh, he really gets the interactions that the average human being is, is having and, and some of the detriments of internet and social media and technology. And I mean, not that it's all bad. I mean, there's a lot of great things about it too, but... But I, I, I thought he had very strong words in the encyclical against or criticisms of some of the things going on oh, yeah. in the virtual world. Right. How it disconnects us from community and brotherhood and, and right. turns us inward on ourselves. And Yeah. But he's, he's criticizing, for example, the harm that certain you know, media are doing mm-hmm. to fraternity. Including Christian media. Right, right. right. Yeah. A lot of it's very similar to things that you've been saying recently in some of your recent talks regarding immigration, with the, how we are fighting against each other and arguing about things, including Christians. And uh, there's a lot of similarities. I feel like oh, maybe he's been taping some of your talks. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm taking more. Well, I mean, I, I've mentioned, you know, in a couple different talks about breaking the Eighth Commandment. It's being done all the time. Mm-hmm. Defamation, you know, rash judgment, detraction, calumny. Right. And you see a lot of that on social media. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... Uh, yeah, the Pope has spoken against that too because it harms human fraternity. These are not only offenses against truth, which means it's breaking the Eighth Commandment, but also they are offenses against charity. Mm-hmm. And how do we build the the human fraternity and social friendship that the Pope's talking about in, in the encyclical when we have this kind of angry attacks against others that, that are taking place through certain media sites. Right. And just, I feel called out too of how often I'm selfish and, you know, concerned about myself or my family and not thinking about others as well. And so I think it's a good challenging read and there's a lot to to think about and to discuss with friends and family as well. You know, I do believe it should make all of us examine our consciences. I agree with you. I have in reading this, you know, especially using the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Like we can be in a hurry and, and let's say there's someone who really needs us, needs our time, uh, needs our help. It could be a family member or it could be, you know, a poor person that we encounter, someone hurting emotionally or whatever. Do we stop and give them time? You know, time is like my most precious possession. Right. You know, I don't have and, – and I have to be careful that I, I don't, like, overlook people because I'm so busy. Right. But, no, it's good. It's a good examination of conscience. And the one thing I didn't realize until reading it this time – was that Jesus actually turns the question around. They ask, who is your neighbor? As in, like, who do I need to love? And he, the question he answers at the end is, who was the good neighbor? So who loved well? Right. Right. It, it kind of yeah, it turns flips it, it a little bit. Like, yeah, it's like, are you, you know, he's basically saying, be a good neighbor. Right, right. You know? All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can text the Holy Cross College text line, 260-436-9598. And we will talk about some of the African-Americans who are candidates for canonization coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and November has been designated as Black Catholic History Month. And so thought maybe this would be a good chance to take a look at some of the African-Americans who have a cause for canonization open. And I think most, if not all of these are servant of God or venerable. Mm-hmm. Are there any of them blessed? No, no, okay. no, be, no one beatified yet. Okay. So they're on the first or second of the four steps towards sainthood. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know where you want to start. There's quite a few of them actually. Well, I think Father Augustine Tolton, venerable, Father Augustus Tolton would be a good one to start. If you might remember, a few years ago, we had the uh, one-man play yeah. that we had at uh, our high schools, and it was it was so beautiful, very touching. And and I know up in uh, South Bend, there's a lot of devotion to him, especially at St. Augustine Parish and mm-hmm. our African-American Catholics there. And I think some of the listeners may, may know a little bit about him. He he was born of the son of slaves on April 1st, 1854. His father died while he was serving uh, in the Union Army during the Civil War. His mother took him and his siblings across the Mississippi River, and they settled in Quincy, Illinois. So his life really began as a slave, hmm. and that was uh, in, in Missouri. I didn't mention that. And really, it was pretty narrow escape when his mother and his siblings crossed into Illinois. So this was, by this point, the the Civil War had ended, but there was still so much opposition. He experienced in school a lot of, of prejudice. The parish priest was wonderful. He supported this this young man and uh, and he discerned the call to the priesthood. Mm-hmm. He was a very holy young man. He knew in his heart that God was calling him to be a priest. 
but he couldn't get accepted in an American seminary. The fact is there was segregation and he kept pressing forward. Finally, he was accepted in Rome, a seminary there. And in Rome, he studied. And the idea was, was that he would serve as a missionary in Africa. Mm -hmm. But after he was ordained in 1886, the cardinal, who was the prefect of the Congregation for Propaganda Fide, which did priestly formation for those in mission countries, said to him, no, America hasn't seen a black priest. You need to go back to the United States. And that's what he did. And he was assigned to his hometown, Quincy, Illinois, where he had you know, grown up. And he, he served in that parish. He, he did experience a lot of racial prejudice, even by some of his own brother priests and by some of the uh, people. But he never reciprocated with hatred or he always had love for others and he accepted that cross. But then he requested a transfer so that he, he didn't feel like his ministry in Quincy was that successful. So he asked to be transferred to Chicago and, and, and that's what happened. Uh, and he, with great zeal and dedication served, he established a parish for black Catholics in Chicago. It's St. Monica's Church and uh, just worked tirelessly. Uh, he had great love for his people, great humility. Just spiritually, he was very deep. And uh, after returning from a retreat on a train, he collapsed on a street corner in Chicago and then died shortly thereafter at the age of 43. Hmm. So he gave his life. And uh, he is really someone who I, I hope will be beatified soon. We're praying for a miracle. Mm -hmm. That's what's needed. I've heard that there might be one that's being examined right now, but I'm not absolutely sure. Okay. The cause for his beatification, by the way, and canonization was introduced by Cardinal Francis George before he died. And uh, that was about 10 years ago, I think. So the, the case is in Rome. That's why he's venerable. It's at the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, and we just have to uh, pray for a miracle. So if anyone, you know, I encourage people to pray for his beatification or, or to ask for his intercession mm -hmm. if there's someone that is, um, you know, in need of a miracle. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I suppose that's true with uh, several of these, although uh, I get, you don't have to have a miracle to be venerable. That's correct. So to go from servant of God to venerable. Uh, like, uh, for example, Sister Thea Bowman is a servant of God. Right. And so she could be elevated to venerable if they continue to examine her life and find that it's... Heroic. Okay. Heroic virtue is what, you're looking, what we're yeah. looking for. Okay. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Sister Thea Bowman? She's sure. the, the most recent of... Uh, who lived most recently mm -hmm. in, in our lifetime... She was born in 1937 in Mississippi, and she converted to Catholicism as a uh, young girl. I think she was eight, nine years old. She was attracted to the Catholic faith, and I think she was, you know, taught by religious sisters. And um, she was really attracted to the joy of the sisters, 
And that led to her next step, was, which was to um, become one of them, to mm-hmm. join the sisters. And I think at the age of, um, as a teenager, maybe 15 or something, I think she entered into this community called the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. They're not the sisters that we have in Mishawaka. It's a different group of Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration that's based in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So she completed her high school there and um, was an aspirant for and she was the first black woman who had entered that community and, uh, of course, had to move from Mississippi. She worked really hard, uh, persevered in the life of the community. Some of the sisters were prejudiced, hmm. but she always had this cheerful disposition, this beautiful love for Jesus and for the church. She contracted a type of tuberculosis, so she had um, a year that she had to be in a sanitarium to get better. Hmm. She took the name Thea as a sister, Sister Thea. Her birth name was Bertha. So it's Sister Thea. She was assigned to teach in Catholic schools. She was in La Crosse, then back in Canton, Mississippi, Washington, D.C. She got her master's and doctoral degrees from the Catholic University of America in English, became a professor at her alma mater, Viterbo College in La Crosse. And then this, the American Civil Rights Movement was going on in the 1960s. She, uh, that was very formative for her. She uh, spoke up on behalf of her African-American brothers and sisters. She worked to eradicate racism, to bring healing to our society. She wanted to give a greater awareness of the, of the uh, gifts of African-American culture and to promote interracial harmony. She then ended up going back to Mississippi to take care of her parents when they were needing help, and she worked in the Diocese of Jackson, Mississippi, in charge of intercultural affairs, and she continued the same kind of work. She was a beautiful, you know, she did beautiful writings. She was a teacher. She was a musician, but she was an evangelist. She preached the gospel to to clergy and laity. She especially was a spokesperson for the the black Catholic experience. Mm -hmm. And um, she was diagnosed in 1984 with breast cancer and had to have chemo and was uh, physically became uh, very weakened and limited, had to be in a wheelchair, but she still continued her ministry and continued to travel. And about a year before she died, she gave a speech to the bishops of the United States very famous about the African-American Catholic experience and the need for greater participation, fuller participation of blacks in the life of the church in our country. She uh, died in 1990, and it was just a couple years ago in 2018 that her cause for canonization was opened up. So I encourage people also to pray for the beatification of uh servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman. Okay. We might have to do a speed round on the rest of these. Oh, I'm talking too long or, on or, each of or these. Or we could extend it to next week. Oh, okay. If, well, if do you we have time have for maybe one more? I don't sure. want to rush too sure. much. These are beautiful people, and mm-hmm. I hate to... Uh, the one other one that I know the most about is, is because of where I'm from, is uh, Mother Mary Lang. She settled in Baltimore, so that's why I, uh-huh. I learned about her because Harrisburg isn't that far from Baltimore. And 
Mount St. Mary Seminary is in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. So I would hear right. about Mother Mary Lang. She was born in Cuba, and but she was of African descent. And uh, she left the island of Cuba and immigrated to the United States. And eventually she started in Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, but then eventually she settled in Baltimore. There were a lot of French-speaking Catholics, uh, many of African descent already in Baltimore because they had fled Haiti at the time of the revolution there. She recognized that there was a need for schools for these African-American children in Maryland. So she, out of her own home with another friend, she operated a free school. Eventually, that didn't work out financially, but one of the Sulpician priests in Baltimore persuaded her to start a school serving girls of color. Hmm. And um, so with her friend, she accepted that challenge and together with that, decided to found a women's congregation of sisters, religious sisters, to operate the school. So that community, that religious order, is called the Oblate Sisters of Providence. Hmm. The Oblate Sisters of Providence. She was, of course, the first superior. They were established in 1829. It was It's the first successful congregation for African-American women in the United States. Hmm. So she had this, this wonderful vision and she was a very holy woman. She persevered, and as well as the other sisters, the Oblate sisters, through many ordeals. They gave their lives in service to their students, to orphans, to the poor, the sick. And it's, it's a very beautiful life when you read about her. There was an epidemic of cholera in Baltimore in 1832, and she and several of the sisters cared for the victims of cholera always trusting in God's love and and God's will. Through all these difficulties and hardships, she persevered, and uh, eventually she passed away on February 3rd, 1882, and her cause of canonization was opened in 1991. If anyone ever wants to visit her, her uh, earthly remains are in the Mother House Chapel of the Oblate Sisters of Providence. Uh, they were transferred there in 2013 in Baltimore. So again, we pray for the beatification of this servant of God, this extraordinary woman, Mother Mary Lang. And people can find all, all kinds of information online. Is there anything particular that you'd recommend if people want to learn more about these African-American Well, there's a good biography saints? of Father Augustus Tolton that I've read. I can't remember okay. the title. Uh, I read it some years ago, but I would say, yeah, go online. I'm, I believe there also is a book about Mother Mary Lang. I don't know about Sister Thea Bowman if there's a book on a biography of her. There might be, but yeah, there's plenty of information. And it's interesting that uh, maybe in the next ep- uh, next episode we can talk about the other three. Two of them are are, are women. One's a laywoman, Julia Greeley, in Denver, Colorado. Then there's another woman who founded a religious order, Henriette DeLille in New Orleans, and then Venerable Pierre Toussaint, who's buried in St. Patrick's Cathedral, New York, under the main altar with the archbishops. Okay. He was uh, another Haitian immigrant. Well, yeah, if you're up for it, we'll do a a part two next week. Okay. Sounds sounds good. good. 
All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another great episode. A reminder that people can ask questions by going and texting the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Be happy to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Take care. Check out the show notes for a link to the Vatican website where you can download the Pope's newest encyclical for free. Did you know there's more than 160 episodes of Truth and Charity in our archive? You can listen to them anytime by searching for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Or more directly, download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet, then select Podcasts. You'll find not only Truth and Charity there, but also all our locally produced programs. Check out our two newest programs, The Daily Refill and The Sandwich Generation. Share a favorite with a friend. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.